Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start together a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, which actually starts in chapter 5, but we're going to take a little bit of time together and discuss the, the lead-in to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, no doubt the Sermon on the Mount is probably familiar to you, and, and maybe if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not really sure, I don't really know what the Sermon on the Mount is, um, here's a couple of things just to tease your understanding. Judge not that you not be judged. That's pretty familiar to us, right? That's something that we're familiar with. How about this one? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's the golden rule, right? That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said those words to us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Our culture, especially those two things, we hear that a lot in our culture. Our culture can get behind those two, those two notions. We can get behind those two notions. Judge not, and then do not be judged, and then whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Our culture gets behind those. It's really the rest of the sermon um, in chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew that people struggle with. Our culture can't get behind the rest of the ideas. The rest of the sermon, where we also, as those who are in Christ, are uncomfortable with that as well. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say before we're through these three chapters in Matthew, we together as a body are probably going to feel a bit uncomfortable. Let me go ahead and just say it. We're going to probably feel a bit uncomfortable. And by saying a bit, under, a bit, bit uncomfortable, I'm actually going out on a second limb and saying that's an understatement. We're probably going to feel very uncomfortable by some of the things that Jesus says here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So let's look together at a text leading into this. We want to slide into this teaching, and we're going to spend like our summer months and probably more in these chapters. But what we want to do is kind of think about where Jesus is and why he is doing the things and why he's going to say these things to his disciples. So if you'll read with me, we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to talk about these verses this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 1. And he, Jesus, went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up the mountain. And when he sat, in, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So what's going on here? What's going on? So Jesus, we see that Jesus is healing people, right? And he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But what's going on here? Jesus has just kicked off his ministry. If we look back in verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus has just kicked off his ministry. Look with me in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after verse 17, when we get into verses 18 through 22, he calls some disciples. He calls his disciples. Then we get to our text this morning, and he's, he's healing. He's proclaiming. 
He's teaching, and he's getting popular. This Jesus is getting very popular among the people. They're bringing him people all over, all sorts of people who are afflicted with all sorts of things, and they're bringing him to Jesus. The crowds are around him, and then when we get to verse 1 of chapter 5, we see that Jesus withdraws. He says, Matthew records, seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. And you see, we see that his disciples are with him. And in verse 2, which we'll kind of lump together with our, in our time next week, and in verse 2 it says, he opened his mouth and he taught them. So he's given instruction to his disciples. And when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that the crowds are there. They've regathered around Jesus. They've come back up to him on the mountain, and they have overheard what Jesus has proclaimed to his disciples. But first and foremost, we have to see in verse 1 of chapter 5 that this is for his disciples. He is sitting down. His disciples came to him, and he's instructing and teaching them in verse 2. Now the question is, we have a lot of work to do here this morning. When the question is, when we look together at this, why does Matthew set the sermon on the mount the way up that set up the sermon on the mount in the way that he does? Why does he do this? Why does he show that Jesus is growing in popularity? Why does he show that uh, people are bringing their sick to him? That's a, that's really a big question. That's the question we should be asking as we get into chapter five, as we get into the actual sermon. Um, do you? <laughs> There are, there are two types of people in this world. One who, at the Christmas tree, you ignore what's underneath it, right? Or you're the person who looks at all the presents and guesses to see what, what, what's under there for you, right? Maybe as a kid. Maybe not as an adult. But, but we look together at the, at the Christmas presents under the tree and guess what they are. Matthew is inviting you to do a similar activity here. He's inviting us, and in these verses that we've read this morning, he's inviting us to do something. He's inviting us to, to look together at what our gift is. And not only that, but he is giving us a clear portrait. But instead of a blender or a gift card to Applebee's, who's guessing that? It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. He is pulling back the curtains. You see, Matthew paints Jesus as the king here, bringing about his kingdom in which sickness, affliction, pain, disease, all of these things are passing away. So he's healing. He's demonstrating that the kingdom of heaven is without these things. Jesus pulling back the curtain. He's getting ready to pull the back curtain back even a little bit more when he begins instructing his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to pull this curtain back even more. So Matthew is setting up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount by showing that Jesus is interested in recreating. He's recreating these people to what he initially intended and delivering people from their bondage to sin and then placing them something new and incorruptible. This is what's going on here. This is why Matthew records what he does in chapter 4, verse 23 through chapter 5, verse 1. And while he's doing that, he's healing. The instruction that he's going to give in the next three chapters is far greater. We can see that just by the sheer volume that he dedicates to it. The instruction that he gives here is far greater in our understanding of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So, so um, and while he's doing that, he's establishing this portrait. He's painting this portrait of the kingdom of heaven. He is people together 
We, his people, as the local church, are like little pockets of the kingdom of heaven. If the healing was pulling back the curtain, then he is painting this portrait through us so that it could be clearly seen what the kingdom of heaven is like. The question is, how would the world know that we are his disciples? How will the world know? What will the world think? And Jesus makes it very clear, as we'll explore over the next few weeks. Jesus makes it very clear. The world will know because of the way that you live. It's completely counter to the culture in which we reside. And I think we usually get this wrong, though. I think we usually get this wrong. We think about our coworkers, we think about our friends. As those who are in Christ, we think about those people. And we think to ourselves, oh, if I'm nice to these people, they, they'll see how much I love them and what I have, and they'll want it also. Well, maybe, maybe, but more likely when we dive in here to the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to find that the world is going to look at what's taught here as inessential, out of date, and closed-minded. The Sermon on the Mount will probably produce more reactions about us being freaks than it will reactions of gratitude. If we're seeking to live the things that Jesus outlines for us in Matthews chapter 5 through 7, it will probably produce more reactions of us being strange than it will reactions of gratitude. The world will think this is strange. This is a theme throughout all of Scripture. In the book of Leviticus, God is he's giving Moses his standards for his people. As he's giving them his law, as he's passing his commands to him, says this. Moses records this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So what is God telling Moses there? What is God telling him when he says, You, you shall be holy? I'm straight here. This is falling. Okay. God is telling Moses that his people will be holy. Well, simply put, it's to be strange, it's to be different, it's to be set apart. That's what he's doing. God gave his people his law to tell them what he is like, and to set them apart from the other nations by making them like him. When Jesus begins to instruct here in the Sermon on the Mount, the effect is much the same. If you're part of the kingdom of heaven, you're part of this portrait. If you're part of the kingdom of heaven, then you're weird, or at least according to the world. John Stott, one of the 20th century's most influential preachers and authors, writes this. The essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself. That this people is a holy people, set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. That is, that, and that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is to be holy or different in all its outlook or, or behavior. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is extending that theme. He's giving principles to, for a completely different type of kingdom to his people. One that doesn't look like this world, but one that is totally counter to it. We're going to see these things clearly as we move through Jesus' instruction. It's not just murder that brings about judgment, but it's anger against your brother. It's not just adultery, but looking at a woman lustfully. You mean I, I can't divorce my wife because she doesn't make me happy? When someone threatens me or my reputation or takes something that belongs to me or hurts me actively, I shouldn't retaliate? I should pray for those who love me and the people that slander me and make my life, life, life difficult. 
I should set aside the accumulation of wealth. I should set aside my anxiety. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus' instruction, making this clear, making it clear that we are a people who are set apart. These and others, we'll discover, are the marks of those who participate in this kingdom portrait. And as we think through the Sermon on the Mount together, we will undoubtedly think. We will undoubtedly think, who can do all of this? This is impossible. And there's tension here that Jesus intends for us to exist in. Stott writes, the standards of the sermon are neither readily available or readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. The fact of the matter is that Jesus offers us the ability to follow these directives. Although none of us will ever reach a point where we follow them here in this life perfectly. And so let's consider then a few things as we read together this as we read together this text. Let's consider a few things that Matthew's setting up that will help us understand what Jesus is saying as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, as we enter into uh, our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Just three simple things. First, a new creation. A new creation. This is a theme, again, throughout the New Testament. A new creation. Secondly, a new exodus. A new exodus, something that the Jewish people would have thought a lot about. As Jewish readers, they would have looked at Matthew's gospel and then said, wow, I see together how Jesus is fulfilling what, what Moses set out to do. And then finally, a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man enacted together, uh, ratified by the shed blood of Jesus. So those three things, we're going to think about those three things this morning. Firstly then, a new creation. A new creation. The idea of new creation is really a theme. Again, like I said, throughout all of the New Testament, really focused in the book of Matthew. It's a very important theme in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And it starts all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1. If you look there with me, just flip back a couple of pages. Matthew just writes this. He writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The words here correspond directly with what Moses records in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Moses writes, there are the, These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The language corresponds almost perfectly. If from the very beginning of the book, Matthew wants his readers to see that Jesus is bringing about new creation. He is restoring his people. He is bringing them back to what was originally intended in the garden. Jesus' very ministry is an act of new creation. It is, a very, it, is a, it is an act of new creation. Again, Jesus, the servant of the world, pulls back the curtain on that portrait, shows us the picture, and says, here is the kingdom of heaven. New creations inhabit this kingdom. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. So this is an interesting point for us because when we talk about new creation, we think about ourselves, we think about our, our current state, we think about where we are at and who we are, and, and we think to ourselves, boy, I, you know, I, I understand that the text says, I understand this is a theme in the New Testament, I understand that Matthew is trying to communicate this to us, but I profess faith in Christ, I'm not sure that I'm a new creation. I certainly don't feel anything, right? I certainly don't feel anything. 
Friends, let me tell you something. The Word of God is not subject to your feelings. The Word of God is not subject to your feelings. This is why this is our authority. Because it is not subject to our feelings. It is not, it is not contingent upon our whims, the whims of culture. Let me say, by way of an aside, we often, re often the reason we set the Bible aside is because we don't feel anything towards it. Because we don't feel anything. We sit down and we read and we're like, wow, that was nice. And then we move on with our day, continuing doing what we were doing. In the Christian life, apart from the Bible, is the equivalent of spiritual starvation. Maybe, maybe you're a disciplined person with your diet. Maybe you go home for lunch every day, this is not me, and you eat some grilled chicken, some spinach, and some water. Wow, that's healthy. And you're pretty much indifferent to the taste because I don't know who couldn't be. <laughs> but, but really, honestly, you know that ultimately those things together are very healthy for you. And you understand the taste, and you have very little feeling towards those things. But you do it because you know it's healthy and helpful for your body. But you're also here this morning wondering why you don't feel anything when you read your Bible. I would submit to you because that's what you don't believe what it claims to be. And here's a weird mark of the kingdom portrait. This is something that's painted all across this portrait, all across new creations, is that we look together here first. We don't say, what do I feel? What do I experience? How, do, how should I live based on the others around me? We say, how should I live based on who God is and what he's communicated about who he is here in his word? Our reality is shaped first by a book. That's weird. That's weird. If I think about it in my, at my core, as a sinful human, that's a weird thing to say. That's a weird thing to say. But the reality isn't shaped by cultural whims. The Bible needs to, as those who have professed faith in Christ, be our only authority. We approach it casually. We don't discipline ourselves to study God's Word. We read it in snippet. And, and, and as time allows, we allow it to just vanish from our minds as we go on throughout the course of our day. We ignore comprehending the text. We ignore interpreting the text. And we ask lazy questions like, what does this mean? How can this get me through my day today?" Earl Blackburn writes this, just as there is no, this is beautiful, just as there is no one single plot of land on earth that yields every variety of flowering tree or fruit, so there is no one chapter of the Bible in which every truth of God is collectively revealed. God's truths are scattered throughout the sacred pages of Scripture and will not yield themselves to the slothful or lazy person who refuses to study. But when we, uh, we know, when we approach the Bible as a slothful and lazy person in a lazy manner, we ignore large parts of it because we don't see how they apply to us. When that's not even the point. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, there is nothing more important in the Christian life than the way in which we approach the Bible and the way in which we read it. It is our textbook. It is our only source. It is our only authority. We know nothing about God and about the Christian life in a true sense apart from the Bible. We can draw various deductions from nature by which we can arrive at a belief in a supreme creator. But I think it is agreed by most, most Christians, and it has been traditional throughout the long history of the church, that we have no authority save this book. 
We cannot rely solely upon subjective experiences because there are evil spirits as well as good spirits. There are counterfeit experiences. Here in this book is our sole authority. The call on the life of every believer is to know God through His Word. This is not an ambiguous thing in God's Word. The call of every believer in God or is to know God through His Word. To study, to dig deep, to rightly understand what God is communicating about who He is. This is not just my job as a pastor. Thank you for giving me hours throughout the course of the week where I can do this and bring this to you. But this is not exclusively my job. We have energy. We have ambitions. We have careers. We have aspirations. Young men, many of us, we have wives. We have children. Right? And I know that we together as a body, we have a lot of things heaped on us as a, as a culture. There are a lot of cultural expectations that exist on us. But as young men, we're up. It is time. It is, it is time for us. We are called to lead our families. If we have wife and kids, we are called to lead our families. We are called to lead them well. We don't provide, we provide for them physically, but we are called to also to lead them spiritually. I... I might be your contemporary young man, but I'm speaking to you now as a spiritual father. As a spiritual father, it is our turn, it is time to move. The most important thing that we can do is lead your family, and by, is to diligently study God's Word. The most important thing that you can do to lead your family is diligently study God's Word. Does that seem practical? No! This is the kingdom portrait. Is our goal practical? No. Your goal is to submit yourself to the authority as part of the kingdom portrait, to submit yourself to the king. How can we, together, expect our families as men to follow us when we consistently fail to recognize the authority of the one that you claim to follow? This isn't a joke. This is not a joke. We are a new creation. This is the whole point of this. We are a new creation. If we are in Christ, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of us. The same Spirit that dwells inside of us was the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He, is, he exists within us to illumine this to us. But it's not going to come through lazy, slothful activity. It's going to come through hard, digging, understanding, seeking to understand and know God's Word and the authority that's contained there within at creation, at creation, Moses records, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, Moses writes, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. At creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That same Spirit indwells God's people, His church. God has made us new, present at creation, and focused now in His people. We are assembled together as a church to bear witness to that newness. We're set apart. When we gather here in this assembly, however many of us, whatever group of people is here on a Sunday morning, we gather together to proclaim the newness. The newness that has been placed inside of the We've been changed, we've been transformed, we've been moved. We are set apart, we are different because of this newness. And that makes us strange. Makes us weird. So firstly, then, a new creation. Secondly, then, a new exodus. And we'll move through this relatively quickly. A new exodus. 
chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus goes up the mountain, and this is reminiscent then of, of Moses. In Exodus 19, uh, 19.3, Moses goes up the mountain and receives God's law. He receives the Ten Commandments. And so, again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. They would have seen this, they would have heard it, they would have understood it, and they would have thought to themselves, Matthew is painting a clear picture of who Moses was and who Jesus is in light of that. Right? So there are multiple parallels here. I'll just give you a couple. Matthew is painting this picture of Jesus. For the Jewish people, Moses was a deliverer. He was a redeemer. He was a lawgiver, yes, but he was also first a deliverer and a redeemer for bringing God's people out of Egypt. That was how they would view him. That's how they would see him. So just like Moses led God's people out of bondage in Egypt, now Jesus was going to lead God's people out of bondage to sin. Just as Moses led people out, God's people out of bondage to Egypt, in Egypt, so now Jesus was going to lead God's people out of bondage to sin. By his sacrificial life, or by his life, sacrificial death, burial, resurrection, and now ascension, he was going to make that possible. And just as Moses went up the mountain, as we saw in, as we see in Exodus 19:3, just as he went up the mountain to meet God and to receive his word and to give it to God's people. Now God himself, Jesus Christ, has come down to bring his word directly to his disciples. This is no new law, but this is a, a message of deliverance, a message of hope, a portrait of the kingdom and what its citizens look like. So a new exodus. Matthew's readers would have seen this, they would have understood it. Our deliverance from the bondage of sin comes because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And then finally then, so we have a new creation, a new exodus, we have a new covenant. A new covenant. Jesus' proclamation in the Sermon on the Mount is one of transformed people. These are people who are transformed. Even this Mark said this last week about people who are transformed. This is given to a transformed people. We're going to go to the table in a few minutes. We're going to go to the table and we're going to see what, what uh, or proclaim together Jesus' death until he returns. But at the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, he tells them that he's bringing about a new covenant with his blood. He's bringing about a new covenant with his blood. In the Old Testament, when a covenant is made between God and man, there's a sacrifice that takes place. And if you read that in the original language, it actually says, and when he makes a covenant, he's actually cutting a covenant, because there's actually physically cutting that takes place. And there's blood that is spilt. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brought about the new covenant between God and his people. That sacrifice, that blood, was brought about this new covenant between God and his people. This covenant was not marked by obedience to commands only, not marked by obedience to commands only, but marked by uh, 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 the, uh, the, uh, the transforming power to keep these commands. Not marked by obedience only. But now granted to us is the transforming power to keep the commands. Mark read this last week also for us. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is the new covenant that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 26, 28. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I, that I made with the fathers of, of Israel, not the fathers on the day uh, when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, uh, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and they will, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say to his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. The commentator writes this, the old covenant that was ineffective because it issued commands, but did not transform individuals to grant them the power to fulfill those commands. The new covenant would involve the inner transformation of God's people. Friends, if we seek to obey the commands that Jesus gives here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, if we seek to obey all that God gives to us in our own strength, we will fail. We will utterly fail. But in a new covenant, as new creations, we have been granted the Spirit of Christ that will empower us to keep these things, to live this way, to paint this kingdom portrait. So then a covenant is cut between God and His people by the shed blood of Jesus, which delivers us from bondage to sin and makes us a new creation through the indwelling Spirit of Christ. These three things then... New creation, new exodus, new covenant. These three things mark the portrait of the kingdom of heaven. And the results, what are the results? That we will live like Jesus outlines in Matthew 5 through 7. So this morning then we'll conclude with these thoughts and we'll move, we'll move together to the table. What is it, what does a kingdom portrait look like? What is this portrait that God is painting? Rest painted, and the curtain now is being pulled back. What does this look like? What is it? I want to submit to you that it's the local church. This is how this is how Matthew sets this out throughout his entire gospel. It's the local church. It's people assembling together as new creations, understanding that they've been delivered from the bondage of sin, understanding that they are a people who who now have been given the uh, the means by which to obey all that God commands. So, Buffalo City Church, if you identify with us as a church, we are a kingdom portrait as those, of the, as those who love and are assembled together to witness new creation. By gathering together, by caring for one another, by loving one another, we are doing this together. We are proclaiming that, uh, what new creation will look like. We are proclaiming uh, what the portrait of the kingdom looks like. Not because we are perfect, or because we don't have problems. Because we do... <coughs> But because we're a new creation that has been delivered from spiritual slavery. And we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to live life like ones who Jesus outlines in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So then, there's a question for us here, contained within this. Question, we talked about the idea of holiness, we talked about being different, we talked about being strange, we talked about being set apart. Those things, are we pursuing that together? Are we pursuing holiness together? Are we seeking to live in step with God's word, however strange, however difficult, however uncomfortable, or however inconvenient it might be? Do we know what God's word says about how we should be living, or are we taking our cues from somewhere else? Are we taking our cues from 
Christian radio or Christian subculture or Christian movies or, or maybe just the world itself? Are we blowing around in cultural winds? The reality of this is, is we've existed here for, I don't know, how long? I can't count. So, how, Buffalo City Church, we've existed here. If you've been with us from the beginning, I'm just going to say clearly, the honeymoon is kind of over, right? We've been here, we've existed for a while. The honeymoon's over. It's over. Some of the things that we've asked, some of the things that we want to do together, like, it's, it gets a little monotonous. The people around us are, are a little annoying. Like, it's the reality of, of who we are as people. And maybe our commitment level has dropped because we, we're not sure how much we're getting out of it. And externally, we're okay identifying with part of, the, part of this kingdom portrait. But every once in a while, we step back and we dip our toes in what the world has to offer a little bit, and it seems pretty good. It seems good. So, my mind as pastor always goes, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do, how do we fix this, how do we fix it? My wife will tell you that because that's like just our marriage in like one sentence. How do I fix this? But how do I fix what I've done wrong? <laughs> so my first thing is I could go to preach some cool sermon to you that would make us react. Maybe that's giving myself too much credit. I probably couldn't do that. But instead, I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to issue a challenge. If you're here in this room this morning, it's because you need to hear that you're too willing, every one of us, Every one of us, we're too willing to be measured by the world's standards and not by the standards of the authority contained within the Word of God. We're too willing to do that. We're too willing to look around and say, this is weird to be here on a Sunday morning and to sing these songs together. That's strange. And, and, to, and to, to hear this guy talk and to do these weird things together. Why are we doing this? This seems so strange and awkward. This doesn't feel natural. Maybe it does. Maybe it feels a little natural because it's something you've done all your life. But it ultimately, it looks strange, it looks weird, it, it just seems strange. So, again, we're in this room this morning because you need to hear that you're too willing to measure what's happening in your life by the world's standards and not by God's standards. So, young people, again, I'm going to speak to you directly, because I understand you, because, well, young, whatever. You, we, together, we labor together in, in what we call work-life balance, right? We have work-life balance. Work-life balance is something that we're always trying to strike as, as millennials or maybe just a little bit higher. We're always trying to do this. But the fact of the matter is, when we're laboring and trying to discover our work-life balance, we, we honestly get so myopic, we get so nearsighted, that we forget to love our neighbor. We forget to be committed to literally anything. We forget to do that. We're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, let your less, yes be yes, and let your no be no. When the world tells us it's okay to skip out on commitments, we see that Jesus says that our yes should be yes, our no should be no. We should look to him as a faithful example, as one who carried through with this, even all the way until death. The world should look at our priorities. The world should legitimately look at our priorities as a kingdom portrait and say to us, Wow, you guys are screwed up and you got it all wrong. What do you mean? Your faith family is more important than self-care. What do you mean by that? How could that even be? What, what do you mean that your perceived happiness isn't what drives you? 
If the world looks at our priorities and finds them reasonable, I will submit to you, if, if the world looks at our priorities and finds them reasonable, we're doing it wrong. That's right. We're doing it wrong. If the world thinks, yeah, I can get behind this Jesus guy, he's healing people, and the text that we read this morning, we can get behind him and see this Jesus guy who's healing, I can get behind that. I just can't get behind the, 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 the lust, the anger, the no divorce, the teaching on treasure, the praying, the loving my enemies, the authority of Jesus stuff. You know, I'll just hear it isn't for me. It's just not for me. But as part of the kingdom portrait, it is for us, and not only for us as individuals, but for us collectively as a church. So, are we pursuing set-apartness together, but also are we pursuing set-apartness or holiness in a personal sense? So three questions, and we'll end with these three questions this morning. Three questions to consider. Is your soul authority God's word? Is your soul authority God's word? Again, do we blow in cultural winds, or are we grounded in something immovable? Jesus is going to tell us about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about this, the house that's built in the rock, the house that's built in the sand. He's going to tell us, where are our roots? Are they planted next to streams of living water? Or are they planted next to dried up broken wells of our own making? Friends, to study your Bible well is not an easy thing. It's not. It will not come easily. And many of us approach it in this laissez-faire sort of way, where we come to this text, we think we're gleaning truth, and we're just using it for our own advancement of self and our own self-image. If you're wondering how, come talk to me. We can, we can do this. Let's do it together. I want to read my Bible with you. Like I do. I want to read my Bible with you. Let's do it together. Let's open God's Word and know God together. So first question is, your sole authority God's Word. Secondly, do you consider holiness just not doing bad stuff? Because I think this is kind of the way that this Word is shaped up in Christian culture. Holiness is just not doing bad stuff. I'm not a bad person, I just don't, I don't do bad stuff. If that's the case, Jesus is going to reorient our thinking in a big way in chapters 5 through 7. He's going to reorient our thinking in a, a big way. We know that we shouldn't have sex with someone who is in our spouse, but why? What's God's intent? What's God's intent? Well, God intended for that to take place within marriage, you say. Well, okay, that gives us some parameters. But the portrait of the kingdom isn't just a bunch of people not doing things. The portrait of the kingdom is God's people doing things the way that God intended them to be done. We get to do these things. These things are for our greatest good. The world tells us they're not. Jesus is going to clear up our views here as well. So then, final question this morning. Do you see holiness as a mark of victory or defeat? Do you see holiness, set-apartness, being different, being strange? Do you see that as a mark of victory or defeat? There's this cultural narrative that goes around that talks about us as Christians as being sort of this beat-up, bruised, sort of like downplayed people. We're coming from a position of defeat. Maybe it's an abstract question. But this narrative says that we're victims. That we're fighting some culture war that we're losing as Christians. This is false. This is false. We are not losing. We are not losing. We are at war. We're not at war with our culture. We're just at odds with it. Our job is not to wage war, but to proclaim truth verbally and with the way that we live. 
Our personal holiness, what makes us different, what sets us apart, is a marker of our victory, not a defeat. When the world looks around, or looks less and less like us, and persecutes us and belittles us, we should rejoice. That's what the Bible tells us to do. We should rejoice when we're belittled for what we believe, for who we are, for our identity. We are new creatures set apart because we've been delivered from sin and given the seal of the Holy Spirit which empowers us to live lives like the world will see as different and weird. This isn't counterculture. We think of countercultural, we think of losers. Counterculturals, this is a standpoint of victory. So those three questions, think about those this week. Is our sole authority God's word? We consider holiness just not doing bad stuff. And finally, Finally, do we see holiness as a mark of victory and not defeat? We're going to move to something different this morning, something strange, really honestly, right? If we think about it, this is something strange. The Lord's table is, is a little bit strange. It's something that we don't think about um, often because we do it regularly, but, but it is strange. We're going to participate, we're going to drink together something that a man said, take my, this, this is my blood poured out for you. We're going to take a bite of some bread and say, this is my body, broken on your behalf. We're going to do that together. We're going to remember together. We're going to remember it. We're going to go there. We're going to see that cup. We're going to think about the shed blood of Jesus. We're going to see that, that, uh, that bread. We're going to think about the broken body of Jesus and the righteousness that comes to us through that. We're going to remember together an act that made us a new creation. An act that made us a new creation. The obedience that led us to deliverance. The blood that brought about a new covenant. So if you haven't been here with us before when we've done this, um, just to, by, by way, you don't have to be a member here at Buffalo City Church to participate together with us in this time. Um, but we do ask that you would be a professing uh, believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not, if you don't know what that means, I'd love to talk to you first. Secondly, just refrain. Don't, don't take, don't take the, the Lord's Supper together with us this morning. No one's looking at you. No one's judging you. This is, this is what we do together as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who have been delivered from sin, who's, who are new creatures. So, together we're going to go to the table. Parents, again, I would ask you to uh, exercise discretion on behalf of your children. If you know they've professed faith in Jesus, go ahead and invite them to participate with you. If they have not, I would ask you just to observe, reflect our time together, um, and think about um, think on the, the things that we've talked about this morning. So I'm going to invite everyone up here to come up here to grab their um, to the worship team to come grab their the elements, and, and then we'll do this together. We'll move to the table together. You can just come up front when your heart is prepared, is in a place uh, to take the elements. Um, grab them, you can participate together at the table or you can take them back to your seat and participate there. Let me pray for us.